This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Brian Kilmeade. You know Brian from Fox and Friends on Fox News Network in the mornings. He also has a Fox News radio show called The Brian Kilmeade Show. He has a Fox Nation show, and he has just been named as the host of a brand new Saturday night primetime show. So congratulations to Brian on all that. He is also the author of numerous books. His latest right here, The President and the Freedom Fighter, about Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglas. It's a fascinating read. He has multiple other books out there. I highly recommend all of them. And uh, I had a great time talking to Brian. So uh, you can find him, briankillme.com. There's a couple book tour events scheduled for February of 2022. Find out more about him and all he has going on there, which is quite a lot. So be sure and check that out. And if you like our conversation, be sure and leave that rating and review wherever you get your podcasts to help this thing climb the charts, keep climbing the charts. So now, without further ado, Brian Kilmeade. Six hours a day, five days a week, and uh, those numbers don't even include the new Saturday show, which uh, congratulations on that, by the way. That's, uh, That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, what, I, what I did is in actually 96, I was at New Sport, which is a 24-hour sports network. I was a reporter anchor there in that order. And, you know, also doing soccer and boxing and UFC stuff, trying to do as much sideline, you know, side work as, as possible. That That is side work for, uh, for people in broadcasting, as you know, uh, back then anyway. And then I heard about a news channel that's looking for a sports guy, Fox News. MSNBC was launching at the same time. And so I put my tape in. It was just one of those times you send your tape all around back then. Now it's attachments and you just hope for someone to take interest. And it's very much taste, you know, Hey, I hate that restaurant. I love that restaurant. doesn't mean it's a bad restaurant. It's up to personal taste. And these guys like my tape and they asked to see me right away as in the next day. And Fox news wasn't even on in New York. I started filling in as a sports guy, the other sports guy, they let go. And then when princess Diana dies, when, uh, the Bosnia war started, then 2000 election mess takes place. The 9-11 attacks happens. It becomes clear that there's not much for sports here. And if I was going to stick around, I'm going to tap into my news background, which I wanted to do anyway. So that was in 97. And each time you do the morning show. And then I was able to fill in for Tony Snow doing the radio show. Tony Snow got picked out of nowhere by Bush to, to become the press secretary. So they said, you and the judge, uh, Napolitano at the time, you can host the show together. You got, you got to decide in an hour because Bush is going to announce Tony. We don't want to lose all the affiliates. And then the judge stopped doing it, and I took over 12 years ago. And then since that time, they just this has become like a gym. So you walk in, and you do your show, and they say, hey, Brian, could you help me out with this story? What's going on with China and the Olympics? Uh, what's going on with the mass mandates? And then we just help each other out now. So that's why you see a lot of the same faces all over the network. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And you were coming into Fox about the same time I was coming into the Navy. So uh, I, I, we kind of came in at the same time. So my whole journey in the Navy for 20 years kind of paralleled yours at Fox. So you've been, been a part of this uh, this journey for the entire time. And, you know, we'd have you on over in Iraq, Afghanistan on the on the big screens in our tactical operations center uh, where we had news going all the time. So uh, so you've been been a, a part of this journey with me, even though you you didn't know it. Um, but, uh, the new book, the new book. Awesome. And I love what you're doing with these. And I have no idea how you're, how you're cranking out so many different, different things. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, but before I get to asking you some questions about this, about Lincoln and Douglas and their strong disagreements that turn to a genuine friendship, um, I want to go back a little bit and ask you about comedy because you did 10 years in comedy to help prepare you for what you wanted to do next. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, uh, what I wanted to do is what happens is while you're waiting for that job, while you're waiting for somebody to like your tape, doing all sports radio on the weekends, uh, filling in wherever you can. I said, what could I do that gets me better on my feet that no one can say no to? And there's always a place to do stand up. So I said, with me, I'm organized and I can't just be I'm not an artist. Those artists like to think about it. They write when they can. They go to a coffee shop, wait four and a half hours for the inspiration to happen. I needed organization. So I signed up for a class. 
and I took eight weeks. And they said, at the end of this class, you will have 15 minutes and you'll be able to have a performance. And I'm like, and I'll have a tape and then I'll be able to show <laughs> the club owners. So I'll do it. So I just thought I wanted to get better at memorizing, did it. And then I was just trying to push everything, radio, TV, and comedy at the same time and see what broke, uh, see what broke first. And I never was a headliner or doing that traveling the country doing it. I'd have different things in Santa Barbara, different things I did with travel. But for the most part, I was going up, trying to work my way through the clubs. And when I first went out to Los Angeles, they hired me at Catch a Rising Star to do sales. And then I'd get to go up at night. So I'd be calling corporations saying, guys, why don't you have your big event here? Why don't you? They've got great comedians. And then I would be able to do that. I'd get paid at the same time, be able to go on stage. So, so I mean, you're putting in the work, you're putting in that foundation work, that foundational right. work that, uh, that you need to do no matter what you're going to do in but, life. But and, I got to ask you, Jack, too, with you, when you were in, what was it like in the nineties in the Navy? It was a little different because we were preparing for war, not going to war. And we were coming out of the Clinton years. So we were still essentially using a lot of Vietnam era type stuff. When I first showed up at this, my first SEAL team, I thought we were going to get issued all this amazing gear like I'd seen in the movies and the beepers and all this fancy stuff. And it was really the same sort of things I'd seen in Vietnam era type movies and, and books. And then after September 11th, of course, the uh, the Golden Connex box opened and uh, the money started flowing in. And of course, we had to adapt because we've been using the uh, Vietnam era tactics that worked very well in the jungle. And since then, we've just been dropping them down in urban environments for training and mountain environments for training and desert environments. And so we really had to take those and then adapt to this new form of warfare, whether it was Iraq in the urban environment or over 10,000 feet in Afghanistan. So we did that very quickly. And that's why we were at the tactical level, I think, so successful. Strategic level, of course, is, a, is another story there. Right. Um, yeah, a couple of things. To, to me, um, I think that that's the most underappreciated thing with our military uh, as bureaucratic as it can be moving just like turning around the titanic i get it how nimble you guys were how you adjusted to a war in the middle that everybody said america didn't have the stomach for you guys not only fought it you adapted to it and you thrived in it i mean think about fallujah and all these operations when you set them up and cordoned it off and put bracelets on people and found out who they were i mean all those operations i think people have to go back and understand what you guys actually did well, I appreciate that. And we're always taking those lessons learned at the tactical level, spreading them out so that uh, lessons learned in blood don't have to be learned again. Um, but the strategic level lessons, those are the ones we have a hard time moving forward and applying experience uh, as wisdom as we move forward. And I think that's what we owe the people who didn't make it home or those that came home still yeah. suffering from the emotional and physical trauma of the battlefield. Um, don't know if we're smart enough to do that or at strategic levels. And by that, I mean senior level military and politicians, um, just because we only think in those four-year election cycles, or maybe eight for the real deep thinkers among us. But right. that's what we owe those people that didn't make it back. Absolutely. I remember in the 90s, they said, why didn't Bush finish the job? Why didn't he just take out Saddam Hussein? You know, why didn't he just uh, fully destroy the whole, you know, the, the whole infantry or whatever they had back then? And then Clinton was lamenting every day, why did Bush leave me this problem? And then when Bush comes in and gets rid of them, they go, why did you do that? Why did you do what your dad did? And just leave them there. So. Uh, it's hard. It's no, <laughs> exactly. And that's something I actually wanted to ask you about uh, near the end, but I'll ask you about it here um, is the role of social media in all of this and how you've seen that evolve over your time in broadcasting. Um, and what gives me hope because there's, I try to remain hopeful uh, in my uh, publicly, but at the end of the night, my wife and I sit down with a glass of wine on the couch and start talking about the day. I mean, it's, it's tough with everything going on. And what gives me hope is thinking back to the end of the Civil War, uh, to Reconstruction, how we eventually came back together with, uh, the country came back together. So I think of that, but then I think, hey, what if there was social media back in the 1860s um, and you could weaponize that social media to continue to divide? You didn't have to be face-to-face -face with someone. You didn't have to get a letter or read it in a newspaper. You could do it con a continual bombardment of division day in and day out. And I think if we had that at the end of the Civil War, I'm not sure that uh, it's the same country, but I wanted to get your thoughts on that. A couple of things, Jack, you know, I was amazed at, and even if you talk to people who are a generation older than us or two, when you talk to them about the 60s, and if you're in New York or Massachusetts, they used to, I used to see this stuff and see the video and do features on Negro League baseball players and segregation. And they say, listen, we didn't have black and white water fountains. We didn't have black and white bathrooms. We weren't segregating like that. I'm not saying there was there was no racist among us. There wasn't 
some naivete when it comes to race relations or ignorance, as Tim Scott would talk about uh, uh, former President Trump. He'd say he's not racist. Sometimes he's racially insensitive. So there was insensitivity and racism. And I'm not saying it didn't exist, but the communication was so faulty back then. And just we wasn't advanced. You could be doing something in the South and you could actually keep blinders on and say, that's not my problem. I'm not on a farm. I don't have slaves. It's not my problem. And I found out only 1% of the black population was actually in the North. And that didn't really change till after the Civil War. So you were able to go through life and live a very in a very small area. You know, it's before the cruises and the international flights and everything. So you could honestly say, yeah, uh, slavery doesn't affect me. And I think that's really what a lot of it, well, Lincoln could say, not his wife, because she did, her mom's, her, her mom and dad had slaves, not a lot. But for Lincoln, he didn't really come across it much until he started, you know, hopping on those boats, going down the rivers and trying to make some extra money. He saw what the South was like. So you could be somewhat narrow. And if it was social media where you could be in Maine and know what's going on in Fort Lauderdale instantly, it probably would have been a lot harder to stop it. Or the goodness and morality that fundamentally in people when they're born would understand how wrong it is quicker. Maybe. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in those terms yet, seeing uh, seeing the problem and fixing it quicker rather than having the, the blinders on and saying it's not my problem. Um, but then the other side of that is, hey, I'm worried about something and I'm outraged about something in San Diego. Then I'm outraged about something in Seattle. Then I'm outraged about something in Chicago. And I go through my day with this just outrage. And uh, maybe I spend a little too much time doing that than actually contributing to moving the ball forward um, and, yeah. and actually, actually helping. I don't know. It's tough. But in that same vein, there's a, uh, there's some, Something you write in here that's um, uh, right here. It's, it's uh, from Frederick Douglass here. And he says, speaking from the pulpit, surrounded by American flags, Douglass delivered an address unlike the many speeches for which he had become famous. He exhibited neither anger nor bitterness, but told his audience he came, and here's the quotes, uh, not to condemn the past, but to commend and rejoice over the present. And I thought after all this per- this guy has been through, uh, he, he finds it in himself to say, say those things and be a leader uh, and bring people together like that. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's how I found myself the whole time. And I started Booker T. Washington too, the whole time saying that's incredible. I mean, this guy, for people to know, uh, we didn't do a lot of it in school, but we talked about Frederick Douglass, significant African-American heroes, but maybe not long enough, clearly. But you have a guy that was born a slave, uh, never knew his uh, mother. He said he was visited twice in the middle of the night by her. A lot of people wrote follow-up books to say, I'm not too sure that happened. But, you know, never knew his birthday. So he grew up in a slave culture. But when he was young, he was able to live a life that was not hellacious. In fact, he was hanging out with a lot of the white kids. And he made a statement later on that those white kids treated him equal. And they used to postulate when he got a little bit older and was living on the docks, it said, you know, we just got to wait for this generation to die out before we get rid of racism. That was in 1840, because he said, I'm convinced kids don't see color. Wow. Knowing that everywhere you see, there's a segregated society where he was in Maryland, and he still thought that. And then you see his life, the horror, which is slavery. Then that he escapes, uh, his, his escape was really education education, willing to stand up for himself, willing to take control of his life. And the minute he started reading about other things, the way people lived and the way life could be, that opened up his mind, but also raised his frustration. He would never be content as a slave. He knew what life was. He knew how smart he could be. He thirsted for education, would manipulate and do favors in order to be able to do his white kid's homework and get the lessons from another. And he also convinced one of his slave owner's wives to teach him to read and write because he was such a cute kid and he was so amiable, evidently, as a kid. And he learned to read and write. And that became the foundation for to become one of the greatest speakers of his generation, one of the most influential people, not only in his country, but in the world. There are statues to Frederick Douglass in Ireland, Scotland, and London right now, and Germany. That's how special this guy was. And he was born without parents, without a birthday, with almost in a hopeless environment, but would not phone in his life. Yep. No, I love that. I love reading this book and everybody should, should grab this. I love what you've done with this, uh, this entire series. But um, also he sensed opportunity, even at that young age. That was what something that stood out in here to me is that even as a slave born into those conditions, he somehow in America saw an opportunity. 
And uh, I also love how you juxtapose, of course, Lincoln and Douglas and how uh, very similar in the beginning in that uh, Lincoln's dad said, Here, here's a shovel, go dig. Why do you want to read a book? Why do you want an education? That's not going to get you anywhere. Go dig that ditch. Uh, and then someone could actually go to jail for teaching Frederick Douglass to read. Um, yeah. So I love how you you juxtapose those two. And then they become, uh, create this this genuine friendship. And I'm so curious how that would have developed going forward had Lincoln not been been assassinated. Um, but then there's a pivotal moment in Frederick Douglass's life and he's 23 years old and, uh, it's near the beginning of the book here, but he gives a speech and he wasn't scheduled to give a speech. He just stands up and gives a speech at this, uh, this rally, uh, convention, uh, in this, this, this building. And they say later, flinty hearts were pierced said one listener and cold ones melted. And I was thinking of him, how you describe him sitting in that audience, kind of not knowing if he should get up and stand because he's not on a, he's not on the list of speaker or anything like that. And he stands up and gives this speech. And then from there he's offered, Hey, I, I'm going to offer you a job here to go around speaking. And, and, uh, he's still essentially a fugitive at this point, I think, uh, when you, through the legal yep. lens, but, uh, I go back and think, what if he hadn't seized that opportunity and how many people are sitting there and what audiences figuratively and don't seize that opportunity? Um, because he had to have been nervous right there. And you described all that background. How could you not be? Um, but it's fascinating. Like what had he not, what would have happened had he not stood up and given that speech? Yeah. A couple of things. Yeah. It was one of these things, almost star search. So they're sitting in an audience, people giving speeches. And one of the people there was William Lloyd Garrison, who was an abolitionist who wrote the liberator, had the liberator newspaper. He believed America needed to be taken down, taken apart. The constitution was built on, uh, basically, um, um, a sack of cards. So we had to rip it apart and let make America live up to its promise. And William Lloyd Garrison's philosophy would be would guide him for a while. He gave him his break. He hired him to be a speaker. He got him off the shipyards and he allowed him to do what he wanted. And that's study the Bible, study everything you could get a hand on and continue to grow his mind and his beliefs. The other thing that people should download that I did in that the one thing Lincoln and Douglas had in common specifically was they both downloaded the, downloaded, bought the <laughs> Columbian, uh, Columbian Orator. And the Columbian Orator is a series of essays from everything from Julius Caesar to George Washington, to Plato, to Socrates, all these philosophers on everything, on education, on religion, on afterlife, on moral codes, on what society should do and what a country should bring, nation states should do. And that, would, that, that was the one thing that both men who were determined to get education whose systems both tried to box them out of it and they would not be denied, go get the Columbian order. And then you understand why this guy was so creative and hopeful at the same time. So he got picked out of an audience. He was very nervous, but he went and spoke. But he had been speaking at his own Bible studies, Black Bible studies before. He also was teaching other slaves to read and write, I understand, conducting his own classes when he was in Maryland. Because believe it or not, there was a system where you got lent, you go to your slave master in Maryland, you almost have a hybrid. Yeah, you belong to him, but you could go work on the docks alongside other free men and women, but all the money goes to him. They'll probably give you some of it. So if it's five cents, you get to keep one. So he was able to see what life was like. It's like, you get to keep your money. You know, you get to keep your clothes. You get to decide what you're going to do on your off day. And when he would have any free time, he would convene other Black Americans and say, guys, ladies, come with me. We're going to learn to read and write and spell. So he used to be kind of standing in front of a class, conducting speeches and trying to motivate. So the foundation was there. Then he goes uh, to Massachusetts and he's free man now. And he begins to feel himself and his wife that was free. So he still understands that he can motivate. And he had some ability, certainly had the intellect. And to me, even though there's no, they told me there might be one speech on camera, not on camera, but a caught on tape. And I can't wait to, I hope to find that. But having said that, the way they describe him, Mal, he's like half Malcolm X, half Muhammad Ali, and half Martin Luther King. Wow. Because he was sarcastic. Uh, he was exaggerated. Um, he wasn't pandering. And he always thought there would be like people in the audience that didn't like him and one that didn't believe that he was actually a slave because he was so eloquent. So he'd always be prepared to take off his back, take off his shirt and show the, the whip marks on his back. So he was ready for that moment because he spent his whole life reading, writing and thinking and in a mini setting teaching. And then he just got better after that. And then he became a writer. Thanks to the liberator. 
And then he became a speaker, writer, and then he starts his own newspaper because there's a lot of great white people who thought about the injustice of blacks in America, like Garrett Smith, and said, man, I inherited a lot of money. I'd love to be support you. I'd love to invest in your newspaper. And you saw that too with Booker T. Washington. He's trying to get money for the Tuskegee University. So he goes to New York to rich people. And a lot of people are saying, we don't want anything to do with you. And others are saying, feel terrible about what's going on. What are you doing? How can I help? And, you know, Carnegie and Mellon and all these people would chip in eventually when it became real that Booker T. Washington was a real guy. And that's what Frederick Douglass did. Frederick Douglass saw racism in people. They'd say some ham-handed statements and said, but his heart's in the right place. I'm not going to say, what a racist. I'm not going to take his money. Enough of them. Uh, there's enough here I can work with. If you're going to finance it, I'll handle you. You know, I'll coach you. I'll deal with your some racist tendencies that you were brought up with. But at the same time, if you could help me move my cause forward, I'll, I'll do it. And I just think, Jack, more people have to do that. Don't ask for the perfect person to work with, the perfect business to launch. Don't walk around and say, this city's terrible. This state is awful. My governor's the worst. What can I work with here? What do we have in common? And then you do what you can, and then you move on. Stop judging and just say, how do I work? How do I, how do I make this happen with what I have? I wish I had enough money to get a computer system that allowed me to Skype on great podcasts like yours. Well, what do I do until then? Could I, could I convince Jack Carr to do this on just audio if I sent him a still? So what are you going to, to adapt? How determined are you to be successful? Instead of judging and saying, the life sucks, life doesn't work, you owe me government. Just get back to that mindset of no one owes you anything. How do I make this work? And how do That's I help good. other people? That's right. It's putting in that work. Once again, at that foundation is just like, just like you did from the beginning, building that uh, foundation. Uh, and I also love how you talk in here about how these men change over time. You went back and you read uh, President Lincoln's speeches early on. And some of those Every are a little, a little cringeworthy. Uh, but you see this development over time. And uh, it's interesting. So there, there were some tensions between these two, uh, especially early on. I think Frederick Douglass is fairly critical of, uh, of President Lincoln, doesn't think he's doing enough or fast enough and, and all that sort of a thing. And it seemed like that, that Douglass has, has the influence, but he's not a politician. And then you have Lincoln who has this power as a politician, eventually as the president, uh, but he needed to be able to exert this influence uh, in a way that you had to do back in the, the 1800s, which is a little bit different than, uh, than today. But, uh, but both of these guys evolve over time, just like we all should. And so when I actually, from reading this book, I, I, I thought about being a little more forgiving of some of our current uh, politicians up there. Maybe someone, someone grabs a tweet that they sent out five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or a, right. a clip from something they said in 1995 and put it up there. I tend to take a breath and be a little more uh, forgiving, especially after reading this and seeing how President Lincoln, one of the greatest leaders of all time, uh, evolves over right. his time. Because if someone grabbed that one speech on social media from, let's say, 10 years uh, before, let's say, 1850 or something like that, and just kept bombarding you with it, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to get past that. Yeah, today. every day. I mean, it's stuff that we take for granted. I think the most easy example that would people, not taking anybody off, but in 2008, if we went up to Barack Obama when he was Senator Obama and said, is marriage between a man and a woman? He said, yeah, that's it. Marriage between a man and a woman. That's it. And that's what he thought. Well, obviously, in 2012, he ran on same-sex marriage and made that part of his platform that, obviously, Joe Biden said it on Meet the Press by mistake and kind of blew the surprise <laughs> of Barack Obama. Doesn't sound like the Joe Biden I run. So it's so it in 2008. Should we hate Barack Obama? Should we hate him, that he was intolerant? Do you really hate George Bush because he ran on the, uh, the Marriage Act or whatever that was called back then because he said marriage should be between a man and a woman, and he talked about a moral code? Well, he has nothing against the gay uh, gay community. He was running on that now. And as he looks around, I am sure he is not against same-sex marriage. Now, so was he a terrible person in 2000? Would society change? So we factored in that a mulligan for Barack Obama and me and whoever else was running for office back that time. Now I look around and say, how could I ever have had a problem with that? Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we grew up with, right? You know, and there are some people that are watching us right now, Mel Gibson or whatever, who go, I'll never believe that. That's not what the Bible says. Well, that's not up to me. That's just not something I'm concerned. I some of the greatest people I know are in same-sex marriages, and I, they would watch, and you would know this in the military too, you would trust them as nothing to do with your sexuality, what kind of person you are, and how they would be, and, and you would know this more than me, in a foxhole. 
Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting in that you would have to really put in the work, let's say in the 1860s, and go back and find a speech that someone had put in a newspaper. Uh, so you'd have to put in the work to find those types of things back right. then. Or you'd have to physically have been at one of these events when these guys are going around the country on on trains and stepping off for a few for a couple hours, giving a speech, and then getting back on and going to another city. Um, I, it would just be harder to weaponize your past words uh, against you back then, it, it seems to be. And now we can, we can certainly weaponize those things. And we can take a one sentence of an entire speech rather than going to a newspaper and seeing the whole thing printed out. We can take that one thing, take it out of context and then throw it out there to weaponize it. And it's just a, it's a tough time, especially for our kids to, to grow up in, I think right now with all of those, those influences and distractions like that. I mean, look at Josh Allen. Did Josh Allen in 11th grade say something that was racially insensitive? I don't remember exactly. And now he's quarterback of the bills and looked at as probably the top three athletes in the mm-hmm. country right now. We've gotten over that but it almost destroyed him. Maybe he dropped a few notches and other teams didn't want to take him because of something he tweeted out in 11th grade. You and I probably didn't have to worry about Twitter. No. Nope. Uh, and if there was Twitter, there would be other reasons why I didn't make the NFL besides <laughs> Twitter tweets. Uh, but, but I mean, that, that could destroy somebody, something they did in high school. We almost sure. saw that with the Supreme court justice nominee mm-hmm. uh, with an accusation there. So they keep going back. I also saw the new chief of staff of Kamala Harris. He had a tweet out that talked about essentially if the, why are these illegals on television talking about wanting citizenship? Why don't we arrest them now? I kind of like that idea. <laughs> uh, uh, Democrats are horrified by that. He had to apologize for it. So in social media, it certainly makes you accountable. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised he survived that one. Um, but when we're ta- also when we're talking about things, things today, I tend to be I try to be a lot more forgiving these days. I found that there is so much power in forgiveness. Uh, I actually wove it into my fictional thriller that's coming out later this year. And then uh, I wove this from Lincoln actually into, uh, into my last novel. And it's from the, uh, his second inaugural right here, which was very short, as you know. And uh, I think if more people went back and just read that, that speech, or at least this, this quote from it, um, you could kind of take a breath and be a little more forgiving these days. Um, but with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. I mean, a little different than the thing, rhetoric we're hearing now uh, from our <laughs> elected officials, because I think they see... They see power in division these days. I mean, the social media companies sure saw it. Maybe in the beginning it was uh, to get clicks for advertisements, and now it's uh, more about power and influencing thought and behavior. And I think politicians were just a year or two behind the big tech companies in figuring that out and seeing how they could uh, uh, they could engage with their base and keep people divided so that they can get that power and stay in those positions that they're in. And that might be a cynical way to look at it, but you certainly do not hear people talking like this. And if you do, then they just turn the other direction and continue to divide. So it's a little disheartening. Um, but once again, Lincoln couldn't have just give this speech and then gone off uh, to the Oval Office and sent a, sent a tweet to his base. Um, so, so different, different times. Right. But uh, th- did you take away any of those lessons about the power of forgiveness, especially writing about Frederick Douglass? No, I'm into revenge. I'm only saying that. Uh, <laughs> Have you read, you've so, read my first book then? Yeah, yeah I didn't read <laughs> That was I therapeutic. Read yeah. <laughs> no, but for, for example, that ticked a lot of people off because we just had a brutal war that killed 600,000 people. Uh, 300 and plus thousand were on the union side. And you were the victory. You led us there through the darkest times and got reelected. Now that you're at your inaugural, go ahead and dance on the grave a little bit. You know, go ahead and uh, dance in the end zone. And he's like, absolutely not. We had to bring this country back together right away. This is not the time to rejoice. It's, show, it's to show respect. So there was a lot of critics of that second inaugural, one of which was not Douglas. And I, I show you that in this book, the, what Frederick Douglass remembered of the conversation the last time they spoke. He had trouble getting into the White House, even though he was invited. He was kind of well-known. Some people didn't want a black man to go to the inaugural. Go figure. When word got to Lincoln, he was having trouble getting in. He was sent someone down and got him in. He sees him. The place is packed like any, like you imagine. He sees him, says, my friend Douglas, what did you think of the speech? And he said, Mr. President, you got so many people here you got to talk to. Don't worry about what I think. You have you take care of your guests, he said. 
There's nobody I'd rather talk to more. I ask you again, what did you think of the speech? He goes, sir, it was a sacred effort. And he knew that Douglas got it. He understood it, that he's, this is about coming together. It doesn't mean you don't have a case to be angry. But we're in this life now. What's happened, happened. Learn from it, move on. And I think people gain to appreciate that more and more. The biggest loss in the history of our country and who did more damage than Osama bin Laden to the 10th power is John Wilkes Booth. Because if you put Lincoln with who we know of Grant as his character emerges in future years with a guy like Douglas, they knew exactly what they hoped to happen in the South. They knew about the challenges. They knew the South was going to lay down their guns and pretend that whites and blacks were equal. They knew they were going to have trouble understanding that they were going to be competing for jobs and not working for free. And they need to be educated and they needed to be able to vote. And all this stuff had to happen. They were going to push in teachers and they were going to build housing and help with the transition. Instead, you got a raging racist uh, in his vice president. And that vice president would quickly get involved in scandal. In comes Grant. And you see how Grant was able to do things necessary. But a lot in many cases, that moment of being receptive to this massive change, in many ways, that door closed, not reopening again until the 1960s, the way it should. Yeah, I know the way you describe that in the book, that last encounter um, with these two at the White House, um, was uh, it was emotional to read that. And, uh, and I love it. I love how Lincoln just responds to that. It was a sacred effort. And he's like, says something like, I'm glad you liked it. Like it was, uh, it was just so fantastic. And it made, left me wondering, of course, what would have happened had they continued to, uh, to develop that friendship, that genuine friendship with mutual respect moving forward. And, uh, you know, the way you describe the vice president at that, uh, at the inaugural getting sworn in drunk at the, uh, <laughs> getting sworn in. I mean, my goodness. And him locking eyes with Frederick Douglass as well. Um, and Frederick Douglass seeing the character of the man through that, through those eyes. Um, yeah. And the way you describe it in here is, uh, I mean, it's next, it's next level and it's, uh, but it's but, hopeful. But Jack, just, just, so you know, just, so you know, those were Frederick Douglass's words. It wasn't where I projected what Douglass mm-hmm. really thought because right. I knew what was going to happen. I went out of my way to make sure I used the quotes. Yep. When they locked eyes across the podium, I saw that the stain, I thought, okay, not a good guy. He's yep. going to be a problem. Yep. No, the way you described that with the quotes in here, it's, uh, it, it, it's absolutely incredible. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the same thing. We, I wonder how the country would be different had Lincoln not been assassinated, how the country would be different had John F. Kennedy not been assassinated. Um, and those are two pivotal, pivotal moments, obviously, in, in our history that had wide ranging uh, consequences that we're still feeling today in, uh, in both, both those cases. Um, but uh, this is not this is not the first work of fiction of history that you have you have done. Oh. I mean, you have you have this whole series here, and you have two books before you start doing these. And I love what you're doing here because you're making this history approachable. Because sometimes we see the uh, you know McCullough history up over there, and they're they're a little bit intimidating. They can be a little little thick, a little dense. Yeah, really. Can take you a little time. You got to devote some time to it, uh, especially these days with all these uh, these distractions. Um, but you make it so approachable, and you do such a great job. So I think uh, as a standalone, if someone never reads another book about Lincoln and just reads this one, I think that's great. They'll be a better person for it. But you can go to the back and go to the further reading in this and you see how yeah. much research that you did. Um, and then people can say, I want to learn more about that, the assassination. Or I want to learn more about Frederick Douglass in his earlier years or, or whatever it might be, or when he went to Europe and where can I go? So that's all in here. So I think that um, you're doing such a service by, uh, by doing these. And, and with everything else you have going on, it's, uh, it's amazing that you're knocking these out. But your first ones how did you do your first two books? And they had uh, they had a sports linkage there. What was the inspiration to start down that path and then kind of to shift from those first two and then start down this path here? Well, the, the first two was um, Judith Regan was the hottest publisher in the country and she had a show here. Mm-hmm. And she was uh, direct, abrasive. I liked her, but you got to be ready to talk. So I had this idea because I wanted to be a great soccer player and I wasn't. And, but I, I, I won all out. I mean, I played 300 days a year, played every pickup game possible. I was from this crazy soccer town that even had the coach of the Cosmos in that town. So, and our first and second teams used to play in the state finals. So I literally would take over our town and just in retrospect, I figured it out. It just so happened. My town was a place where a lot of Germans, Irish and Italians first generation came. 
they all played soccer when no one in, in America did. And they were coaches. They, that's when parents actually coached their kids. And well, you still do that. You're still on that soccer field. I, I know you're out there doing yeah, that. But I'm, I'm not coaching now. My, my kids, my both kids are, the girls are in college. My son graduated. I coached them for 18 years. While you were doing all this, while you were building this career in broadcasting and on TV, yeah, and it's incredible that you did all this. more time, but the thing is, being a morning show host helps yeah. because I'm up at three. I put in four hours before, and then when I'm done with the radio at noon and before I got the radio earlier, I don't really feel guilty going home because I put in <laughs> minimum eight hours. I can pick them up at school at 2.30, so I look like a great uh, parent. I don't know how they feel about it. And then I would coach because I would be that guy that could do a four o'clock practice. I could do the five o'clock practice. So I thought to myself, what a waste of time. I'm playing on a 500 division two team starting for two years, not starting for the next two. And all my friends were like all Americans. My, my really good friend was runner up uh, player of the decade for the big East. He lost to Patrick Ewing. I mean, my other guy was a three-year captain at the university of Massachusetts. So I would be sitting around with guys that I outworked that were so much better than me. And that, excuse me, they were better, but their accolades were off the charts. So I go, what a waste of time that was. And then the more I moved on in my career when doing sports, what do people talk to the sports guy about? Sports. So I would always go, what did you play? Oh, I was a basketball player. I blew out my knee. Well, I was a football player. I never took it serious enough. Well, I played ice hockey and, you know, I was on the third line, but man, those are still my best friends. And I thought to myself, you know, the games do count. You know, it does matter just because no one was at your game, just because you didn't make history, just because you don't not in Canton or Cooperstown. You didn't waste your time because I learned to compete and I learned disappointment. I learned unfairness when the ref blows it or I think he did or the coach is wrong or I'm sure he was. Uh, you know, I learned all that. So when I didn't get the job and uh, people didn't like my tape. And things aren't fair. I had more experience than that guy or that woman. They hired the other guy. You go, okay, welcome to life. Yeah. I've been dealing with this since I was nine. So I did interview 72 people about what their experience was. And if they weren't pro, they weren't eligible. I didn't want Joe <laughs> Montana yet. I wanted George Allen's son, who wanted to be a great quarterback of Virginia, was able to go into the WFL, but then failed and was we thought he let his dad down. And that burning desire fueled him to become governor of Virginia. So I just tried to tie those stories into kind of be inspirational and digestible. And I did. It's how you play the game to prove even in history, Teddy Roosevelt as a boxer, Lincoln as a wrestler, uh, Montana as a quarterback, The Rock as a football player. I wanted to bring the moments that happen in sports that still pay them off in life. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, when he was boxing at, at college, um, uh, got hit after the bell and everyone was uh, pulling for him to win. And they were about to riot. He said, guy didn't do it on purpose, settle down. And he gave him a hug, settled everybody down. And that showed him, he's like, you know, it's always good to be a gentleman and a sportsman. And that's what Tweed, his great grandson told me that stood out in sports. So I tried to find somebody related or descended from whether it was Ronald Reagan's son talking about his days, as a football player and how it eventually obviously paid off and getting some roles like the Gipper, George Gipp, you know, I, I wasted my time. I wasn't a great football player. Really? Well, when there's auditions for a football player, he had a uniform at his house. <laughs> he showed up, knew the game, knew the movements and knew the mindset. So sometimes your success is delayed through experiences that you think are failure. And I was done after that. When I started doing news, I'm done. I'm not going to do sports on a news channel with all these wars raging that you're fighting. And there was one thing I always did on the side is study the spy ring, George Washington's spy ring. I couldn't believe it happened right in my neighborhood. And that's George Washington's secret six. And for 20 years, I did it. I would look at it and study it because I thought it'd be a great movie. And I would meet Jerry Bruckheimer. I meet other people and they would talk to me and I tell them, they go, Brian, it sounds good. But if you want to be smart, write the book, even if it sells one copy, people like to know that it was out there in the marketplace and I was received. I'm like, Okay. So I teamed up with another guy and we did it. And it sold over a million copies. Uh, same thing with Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, your first war on terror that you're yeah. fighting. Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates is our first war on terror. And believe it or not, the guy that really didn't want to physically fight in the revolution was the one who instinctively knew Thomas Jefferson that we're going to have to fight these guys. 
because they're not going to understand diplomacy. And what John Adams said is, we can't fight them because we're going to have to fight them forever. I've looked in their eyes. These guys don't quit. They're being fueled by the Koran. And Jefferson's like, well, we don't have a choice. We need the Mediterranean. Everybody else is paying them off. We have no money. We're going to build a Navy and we're going to fight them. Washington built the Navy. John Adams thought we're going to fight the French. Focus there. Jefferson takes over and says, yeah, I'm not paying them off anymore. They're going to get ticked off. They're going to declare war on us and we're going to fight them. And we got it wrong in the beginning and we adjusted. And that story people resonated with. Oh, yeah. And you'll see William Eaton, Steve Decatur uh, and all these others emerge. And then Andrew Jackson, the miracle of New Orleans. I, you know, Jackson and Trump had a lot in common. I also love Jackson's story. Uh, Jackson's story is somebody that was an orphan, thanks to the British. Uh, his dad died before he was born. His, his brother was killed when they were both taken as prisoners. His mom died um, in some domestic accident. He just got a, he got her uh, trunk of clothes and found out he was an orphan. And he was raised by his town, his country. And he wanted to pay his country back. And he also wanted to pay back the British. And he ends up being a self-taught major general and propels that success, that determination, his time as a senator, as a lawyer, as attorney general, to become a two-term president. And then with Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, I wanted to make sure that people knew about uh, Texas and how it became part of the union. I thought, let's tell that story outside Texas. And I did it through Sam Houston, who should have been a president, mentored by Andrew Jackson, fought under Andrew Jackson. And you see the uh, people know the Alamo, okay? You don't know what happened after outside Texas and outside historical circles. Battle of San Jacinto, they won it in 17 minutes. They wiped out Santa Ana and his army and actually captured him. Uh, so I thought that would be a story that people liked. Then it brought me to the president of Freedom Fighter. So I just try to tell slices of the American story because people keep on wanting to tear down America. I want to hit you with facts and tell you why you never should. Oh, I love it. And all these are so inspirational, just like your life journey. So inspirational. Uh, all that work you put in and continue to put in all day, every day. And uh, I'm going to got to let you go here now. But uh, I mean, you have website, uh, briankillme.com. You're going to Sea Island. There's a couple. Uh, I did my, one of my first signings out there as well. What an amazing place. Um, that's coming up in February. Uh, so you got Fox and Friends in the morning. You got the Brian Kilmeade show on Fox Radio. You have a Fox Nation show. Uh, you have the new Saturday primetime show. You have these books. Uh, what is what is next? What do you want to explore next? Is there another well, uh, one well, of these bit, books in the, in the works? Tim, I, uh, Jack, I don't know if you're going to... Um, you know, I don't like I know people are going to click on this at different times, but I'm just right now this whole week. I just got the show 10 days ago. Uh, we just had my last meeting. Now I got another one. Uh, they're, they're lighting the set is why I got to run. But that I uh, but uh, my focus now is try to make this successful. I'm trying to make it. The name of the show is One Nation, because, listen, I people know how I feel, but I don't hate people that disagree with me. And if I could, I'll sacrifice some ratings, not all, in order to try to solve problems rather than get people incensed. So my hope is for that hour from eight to nine Eastern and again at 11, that people see different guests, different perspectives. And I also don't mind to take a step back and tell you what the filibuster is, what the real problem with Ukraine and Russia is, and give you a historical perspective on these things. And stop assuming that everybody knows has this foundation. And that's why I thought that that's what this show, they're going to give me an opportunity to do it. And I'm just thrilled. So, and I'll be able to do it, um, uh, do it on a time in which it's not going to sacrifice a lot of time from uh, my family. And I'm not going to be good at golf ever anyway. <laughs> uh, and probably tennis. So I look forward to that. So that's the focus. And they want me to come up with another project. I'm thinking about something in time that will move forward that doesn't get it in between when I left off and world war one. Mm. And I, I do like talking about race mm -hmm. in a historical perspective. I'm not proud of that stuff that went on, but we need to understand in context, what happened to understand how far we've come because we've come a long way. Thanks to great people uh, like Douglas and Lincoln, a lot of white people helped too. That's what the 1619 project doesn't show you. Mm. There were white people who realized the error of racism, uh, the idiocy of it, and we're determined to sacrifice everything to move that story forward. And that 1619 doesn't acknowledge that. 1619 says that 1776 was all about slavery. Not close. You know, right. You lost me right there. And I think that that's that book 
that series did more damage to America than anyone. So I'm just hoping to stop with the divisiveness and people aren't saying this is a white guy hosting a show on a Fox News conservative network. I want people to say, I, I learned something, I enjoyed it, and you had fun. I'll tap into the comedy a little. There you go. Tap into that. And uh, no, thank you for writing these books. I think they're, they're so important for everyone to, to read. Uh, and thank you for all you do. Um, such an inspiration personally and with, with everything that you share with the nation. Um, and next time I have you on with your, for your next book, uh, I would love to, I'm going to ask you about Jim Brown, the lessons you, you learned from him. What an incredible story there uh, announcing in the, the UFC. And then how on earth you manage your day to accomplish all these things. So uh, thank you so much for, for spending this time with me. I sincerely appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can link up in person one of these days. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll definitely have on, a, on these venues between radio and TV. We'll, we'll do this again, Jack. Congratulations on all your success. Thanks for serving the country. Oh, thank you so much for everything. Take care. I'll see you Saturday night. Make 2022 the year that you take control of your finances. Right here, this is my original Navy Federal Credit Union card. Look at that right there. I've been a member since 1996. So go to NavyFederal.org, check out everything that they have going on over there and make 2022 the year that you take control of your finances. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they are always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation, they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Got a couple things to go over here today. First one, Wasteland Forge, James Fleming, veteran. Look at that. Look at that sheath. The workmanship on there. And then that blade. This thing is cool. And James, thank you so much for sending that kind note that explained uh, your background in the army and then uh, everything that went in to making this knife. So um, this is just really cool and extremely, extremely special and sincerely appreciated. So very cool. All right, Blade, Wasteland Forge. Check them out on Instagram. All right. Now, my friend Bearded Frogman on Instagram, you can check him out, go see what he has going on over there. But years ago, he did this to one of my uh, lights here, one of my Surefire lights. I think this is an old one. I think this is an executive, I think it's called. But uh, so he took this little, some bungee, put it on there. I got some hot tape on there. And so you can open your hands, you can do things and not lose your your light. So I really like this idea. Uh, if you're right-handed, you can put it on your left. You can still you can still shoot or you can do this sort of a thing. Boom, boom. Uh, old light, as you can tell. But uh, love that idea. So, uh, man, Joe, thank you so much. Check out Bearded Frogman on, uh, on Instagram. And uh, not a bad idea. Very cool. All right. Other thing, just got back from Safari Club International, and that was out in Vegas this year. I think it's the last time that they're going to be in Vegas. I think they're heading to uh, Nashville next, but Safari Club International, I've uh, been going there for years. They asked me to speak at one of the, the luncheons this year uh, with my dear friend, Chris Cox, so that was that was awesome, and uh, had a packed room, and thank you to everybody who stayed after and asked questions and asked me to sign books and, and all that sort of thing. Um, it was just so much fun meeting up with everybody and seeing, seeing old friends and making new ones. So while I was there, oh, look at that. Yeah, finally, finally got my own Frontier Gear of Alaska. Check out Barney's uh, Sports. You can check them out online on uh, social channels and their website. But uh, I've been looking at one of these packs for, I can't even tell you how long. 
but this is serious right here. So you're gonna pack out some serious meat, like from a moose or something like that in, uh, in Alaska. This is a nice thing to have. So I've been wanting one for a while. I have a lot of packs, as you've been following me for, for a little bit, you know, I have quite the backpack collection I have since I was a, a little kid. So it was cool, been cool to see them uh, morph over time. I think my first was a Kelty uh, frame pack, like this external frame pack back in the day. And then I remember when Dana Designs came out back in the 80s and uh, maybe they were out before that, but my first one was in the 80s uh, and everything went internal for a long time. But uh, there's always something always something cool about these external frame packs like this. So, um, so very cool. Frontier Gear of Alaska. So Kevin, thank you so much. And uh, I cannot wait to take this back to Alaska. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. You can find Brian Kilmeade at briankilmeade.com. You can link to his social channels from there. Be sure to check out his new show on Fox News on Saturday nights and, of course, in the mornings on Fox and & Friends and the radio show as well, the Brian Kilmeade Show. Pick up his books, all of them. The latest one, President and the Freedom Fighter, is so timely right now with everything we have going on in the country. It's so important to have historical context and to have a foundation in history so you can make good, wise decisions moving forward. So Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and everybody else. If you like this conversation, be sure to leave that rating and review wherever you get your podcasts to keep this thing climbing the charts and to help spread the word. You can find me at officialjackcar.com. You can link to all the social channels there, JackCarUSA. And you can go to jackcarusa.com for the merch. My next book, In the Blood, is available for pre-order in all formats right now and comes out in May of 2022. Until the next time, take care out there. Be safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.